Do you want a short roundup of some of the research over the last 12 months in critical care? Well, I've got just the thing. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. I'm quite excited about this episode. I've got a wonderful lady called Nicole Kupchik, um, who is uh, a nurse over in the States. Now, she was recommended to me from the NTI 2018 conference, which happened in March of this year, if I remember rightly. Um, And she did a presentation, uh, which was called, he looks quickly, uh, Critical Care Studies You Should Know About. Um, And having looked at some of the slides that she's very kindly sent to me, um, there are some studies on there that I do know about. There are some controversial ones as well. We'll get to the vitamin C one at some point, Nicole, hopefully. Um, But, you know, um, there's some interesting studies and I think it would be nice for her to be able to share it with you. So why don't you just start by introducing yourself first, Nicole? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So my name is Nicole Kupchik, and I've been a nurse, critical care nurse, for 25 years. I'm also a clinical nurse specialist, and so uh, that's often classified as an advanced practice nurse. I've had just an amazing career where I've been, really been able to have an impact in um just in my profession by working on programs that improve quality across the system. And so kind of my, I think my, my biggest love is probably sepsis. And then um, I, you know, I've gotten to do a lot of work with delirium mobility. Um, I've done a ton of work in cardiac and, um, and now I own my own company. So for the last five years, I've owned my own consulting company where I do a lot of presentations or um, I'll be like a keynote speaker. I do certification review courses or I'll actually go into a facility and help them improve outcomes in different areas. Okay. So uh, you're still working clinically as well or? Yeah, well, clinically in a different capacity. So clinically, um, I worked, uh, I had a per diem job forever at the bedside and I quit that in January. And so now my clinical role looks a little different. So now I go into hospitals as a, as a consultant and help them improve outcomes. So it's a different role. Okay, excellent. Um, right. So why don't we just crack on, Nicole, and, and talk about some of these studies that you highlighted at the, uh, the NTI 2018, because I think there's a lot of discussion could be had as a consequence. Yes, I have. Well, and I'm just going to say, you know, for the last year has just been a pl- there's been a plethora of inf- of data published that have been super exciting. So, yes, mm. so I'll just kind of leave everybody hanging with that, right? Okay. So, where should we start? Where would you like to start? Uh, well, I'm quite interested in the um, the ICU de- delirium um, is a site that um, I think is very very useful, and I'm trying to promote. Um, in my hospital over here in the UK, um, because I think uh, there's lots of issues um, around delirium. There are lots of simple measures we can take, which uh, have been proven to reduce delirium, but I'm not sure necessarily that uh, we are that good over here at doing it. I don't know what it's like in the States at all. Yeah, I'll say, you know, in the States, it's, we're probably very similar to you. It's, it's all over the board, right? You've got some facilities who have made it a priority and they're definitely, you know, making a lot of movement and trying to prevent delirium. But, um, you know, you've got other facilities who are like, delirium, what should we, what, 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 we don't, we don't screen, we don't do anything. So, I mean, it's, it's really, it's all over the board. Yeah. 
So let's chat about these studies because they've been really interesting. So the first one was called the REDUCE trial. And basically what this is, is they um, enrolled uh, over 1,700 patients in 21 different ICUs. This is actually over done on your side of the pond over in the mm -hmm. Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And they asked the question, does Haldol, given prophylactically, prevent delirium? And so patients were randomized to either get one milligram of Haldol three times a day, two milligrams of Haldol three times a day or placebo. And, and of course, you know, you had to be you, uh, at, free of delirium and then you were put into one of these groups. And so interestingly, so their primary outcome was to assess uh, mortality. Secondary outcomes, there were 15 of them. And some of the outcomes included like delirium incidents, 28-day delirium-free days, 28-day coma-free days, uh, duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, etc. And here's what it's they interesting. found. Sorry, Nicole, it's interesting, isn't yeah, it? I, first of all, I just want to clarify that Haldol over over here is called Haloperidol, just to confirm what we're talking about. But I, I just yeah. well, the first thing that strikes me there, the primary outcome is mortality. Now, you'd have thought if you were giving a drug to reduce <laughs> oh. delirium, the primary outcome would be the redu reduction of delirium. Yeah, well, and I think I'm just going to guess that that um, kind of equated to we know mortality is much higher when patients develop delirium. Mm. You know, and I, and I think it's not some, you know, the impact definitely there's a hospital impact of um, on mortality from delirium, but really it's the, the six month and year outcomes where you see a, a drop in survival if patients have developed delirium. Okay, so and what so, did you um, Yeah. So, so what this showed, okay. So first of all, the one milligram TID prophylactic Haldol, they stopped it early. It was absolutely making no benefit. There was, there was no benefit to it. So that was stopped early. And um, that was probably no big surprise. So about 350 patients got the one milligram of Haldol TID. And then what they found was between the two milligrams of Haldol TID and placebo, uh, there was no difference. So there was no difference in anything. There was no difference in mortality or any of those secondary outcomes that I mentioned. So, uh, so yeah, that was kind of a bust. So Haldol as a preventative measure, complete bust. And it's interesting that the next study you go on to is dexmedetomidine, isn't it? Because that's, yes, the, yes. that's the big drug that everyone's talking about at the minute. Now, it's, it's, it's very patchy over here in the UK at the minute as to whether, whether trusts use it or not. Some have been using it for a few years. Some trusts don't use it at all. And uh, the hospital I work in has only just started using it. Now, one of the main problems with dexmedetomidine um, is always quoted as cost because it's quite an expensive drug. But um, the next study I think you talked about had uh, dexmedetomidine is it, as, as the trial drug, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the whole cost thing just drives me insane because, you know, I know especially our pharmacy, our pharmacy departments, you know, and, and I don't know if it's the same. I'm going to guess it's a little bit different in the UK, but in the US, we've got like all these silo budgets. So pharmacies got their budget. And um, and so we there was a lot of resistance in our facility because oh, the drug is so expensive. But, you know, this is where like my role as a clinical nurse specialist, I was able to say, you know, listen, yes, the drug might be expensive, but in the long term, we actually avoid a significant amount of cost because patients don't get delirious. They get out of the ICU quicker. They get extubated quicker. You know, they get out of the hospital quicker. But anyway, 
So this study was interesting. So they enrolled 100 patients who were delirium-free but were high risk of developing delirium. And so if you can imagine, you've got 100 patients, don't have delirium. And what they did is this was done in two different um, centers. It was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And patients were randomized to either get nocturnal dexmedetomidine, so they would run the dexmedetomidine from uh, 9.30 p.m. until 6.15 in the morning, or they would get placebo at the same time. So if you can imagine, you don't have delirium. At night, you're either going to get dex from 9.30 till 6.15, or you're going to get a placebo. And again, this was blinded. And what they would do is if patients were receiving sedatives, they would cut those in half during the night, but they wouldn't touch pain medication. And um, and so what they would do is that the goal was to titrate up either the study drug, DEX, or placebo up to um, a RAS of minus one. Hmm. And they did this every night while the patient was in the ICU until they were discharged. And what they found, which I was so excited, was that there was less delirium with dexmedetomidine versus the placebo. And it was, it did, it definitely reached statistical significance. And so this is kind of exciting to know that maybe finally we've got something that actually prevents delirium. And, but one of the interesting findings was they um, did a qualitative portion where they did, um, they asked patients, how was your sleep? And they used a tool called the LEADS Sleep Evaluation Questionnaire. And between the groups that got dexmedetomidine or got placebo, there was no difference in what the patient perceived as their quality of sleep. Now, one of the things I think would have been interesting to do, and I'm not faulting the study by any means, so don't take it that way, but um, one of the things I think would have been interesting to do if you had the budget was to measure how long these patients spent in REM in the DEX group versus the placebo group. Yeah, whether they're actually getting proper sleep or not is the real question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, you know, I can imagine like if you ask me, you know, because how many of you out there have worked night shift? I think a lot of us have. I did nights for 14 years, right? And what's one of the first questions we ask each other when we come in on shift? How did you sleep, right? And, you know, and perception of sleep is so, um, it's so subjective, and I'm going to guess most people don't feel like they get quality sleep in a hospital because they're not in their own bed. You know, they're in a different environment. But interesting. It, I just think it would have been interesting to see if more patients actually did reach REM who got DEX versus those who didn't. Yeah. Uh, a small study, isn't it? But, you know, it's an indicator of some things that could be uh, investigated um, in the future, hopefully. So it's two centers, like you said, but just uh, 100 patients. So a bigger study might tell us a little bit more, hopefully. Yeah, I don't know. Like, how many is enough, right? Yeah, this is a problem. Yeah, difficult. I mean, what what was the 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 outcomes of that? What were they aiming to 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 measure? What was the primary outcome there? Yeah, so they looked at um, delirium free days. Right, okay. That was their um, one of their primary outcomes, and what they found was that eighty percent of patients in the dexmedetomidine group had delirium free days versus only fifty four percent in the placebo group. Right. Okay. And that the p value was point uh, zero zero six. And not only did they find that there was less delirium in the dexmedetomidine group, but they um, if they did develop it, it took them longer to develop it than the placebo group. The placebo group developed delirium pretty quickly. 
Okay. Versus if they were going to get delirium versus the dexmedetomidine group. So, so, which I thought was was another fascinating finding. So, am I to gather that these patients were being sedated, sedated with dexmedetomidine as in preference to any other kind of sedative? So they weren't using midazolam or propofol; they were using purely dexmedetomidine. Well, so in the st- study, what they did is if if they were getting a sedative, they halved that background sedative during the night. And I hope people are not using benzodiazepines to sedate patients anymore. No. I mean, there's enough data that's saying we shouldn't. No, so, we certainly So if it was anything, hopefully it was propofol, I hope. Yeah, we certainly don't use that anymore over here. We haven't for several yeah. years now. So, okay, so that was, that's um, uh, an interesting study. A, a couple of interesting studies, really. Um, you know, there was a, a study also about visitation rights. And um, I don't want to yes. go necessarily too much into this one, but um, I am very yeah. aware that there's two contrasting results from this. Um, that there's, yeah. there's the family side of it. And there's the staff side of it. So it strikes me from the um, study that you you focused on here, and I've heard this from other studies, this was a meta-analysis, wasn't it? Um, That flexible visiting is greater satisfaction from the family's point of view and um, actually has been shown to uh, reduce some more significant uh, measurements as well. But uh, flexible visiting policies are associated with higher staff burnout levels, which I think is an interesting one, because if you ask any member of staff or a lot of members of staff, they really don't like the, the, the open, flexible visiting. They often say it's because it affects the patient. But I think if this study is to believe, more likely it's affecting them and not the patient. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with that. You know, um, I don't know. I've always been super open to having families at the bedside because I literally grew up in hospitals. I was raised by my grandparents and, you know, and they were in and out of the hospitals all throughout my teenage years. Mm. And, and I'll tell you, it was, this was back in the day when, you know, you were only allowed 15 minutes on every even hour. And when you miss that little window, it is, it it can be devastating as a family member to be on that other side. And so I don't know. I just think, you know, um, I do think it's a lot more work. And one of the things I asked, you know, the group when I was at NTI is I asked the group, how many of you out there are managers? And, you know, quite a few people raised their hand. And I said, you know, when you are thinking about acuity and staffing, this has got to be factored into it. A family that is demanding and busy is takes up just as much, if not even more time than a sick patient on, you know, mechanical assist device with vasopressors. Mm. And this is, I really think in acuity models of staffing, you've got to consider this. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, interesting. Um, I'm, we're going to skip forward a little bit now. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to bob around a little bit here, Nicole. Actually, as I see okay. them and they grab my interest. But IV fluids. Now, this is a question that's been going on oh, for God yes. knows how long. We've had process. We've had a rise. Uh, we've had this fluid. We've had that fluid. We've 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 had starches. We don't use starches anymore. We then weren't using albumin, but now albumin looks like it's making a bit of a comeback. Um, which that the question you asked, and I'd be interested to know what the answers was, was which resuscitation fluid would you expect to hang at your institution? What was the answer? No. Yeah. So if you had, so by far the most common was saline. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, I think it was like over 80% of facilities were still using saline. And I, I mean, I lecture all over the United States and I'll always ask this question and primarily it's saline. Right. Yeah. And I'll tell you, because I've even posted this on social media, a lot of people like saline is near and dear to their heart and they get really upset, you know, when I talk about fluids and, um, but do you want me to just kind of go into this study? Because I think these studies are, 
Yeah. And, and I'll just say that I've never seen studies designed like these. Okay. So what it was, this was out of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, was they asked the question, um, you know, is there a difference between saline or balanced fluids? So balanced fluids defined as lactator, lactator ringers or plasmolite A um, in critically ill patients or in non-critically ill patients. So they had two different study groups. So the one in non-critically ill patients was called the SALT-ED study and critically ill patients was called the SMART study. Now, one thing I think people need to understand is they enrolled 29 thousand patients mm. in this study. Mm. This is insane. Um, this is a very large um, N number. And um, so there were thirteen over 13,000 in the non-critically ill group and then um, 15,000 in the uh, critically ill group. And what they found was that um, in the questions, they, the primary outcomes they were assessing were mortality and acute kidney injury. And what they discovered and were able to demonstrate is that there was a higher incidence of acute kidney injury in both groups. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and this is huge. And so the, the difference was 1%. And I've had a lot of people say, well, 1%, like who cares? What matter? You know, that doesn't really matter. But I want you to think about this. A, a, Sorry about that. Hopefully you didn't hear that. Hang on. Uh, but a 1% difference could equate to a reduction of over 100,000 cases of acute kidney injury per year, and this is in the U.S., or about fifty to 70,000 lives saved by using balanced fluids. Yeah, and it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how many patients in critical care we get with an acute kidney injury as well. And you think, well, oh, yeah. maybe that's one reason why we should stop giving them this um, normal saline. Um, I mean, over here, we're the, you call it lactated ringers, don't you? I think we generally call it Hartman's over here, but this is the balanced fluid. Oh, Hartman's, yes, absolutely. This is the yeah. balanced mm -hmm. fluid that we should be giving, which, and there is many, many websites out there, I I think MCRIT and PULMCRIT did a very good job on their website um, pulling apart um, the different um, physiological qualities of um, Hartman's as opposed to saline. So if anyone wants to go and have a look at a, a written view, review about the SMART uh, and the SALTED trial, I would recommend the PULMCRIT website. Uh, if you just type in, type in PULMCRIT, P-U-L-M-C-R-I-T, uh, find his website and it's on there. Or just, just type in SMART uh, or SALTED trials into Google and you'll find it that way. Very, uh, I would highly recommend it. I did a review in a journal club and I must admit I used a lot of that for that. So it's an interesting trial. I rarely, rarely hang normal saline these days. Um, and if, if it's hung up on a patient I come across, I'll generally take it down and put Hartman's up in its place. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, so, um, so do you make the switch? And, and I think for resuscitation fluids, it's time to make the switch. But, you know, one of the downfalls of Hartman's or um, lactator ringers, ringers lactate, is that it's not, we don't know, uh, first of all, it's not compatible with everything. And then many things we don't know the compatibility. Mm. So, you know, I think that would be just like one thing to always kind of keep in the back of your head is, is this compatible if you're running other medications in that same line? Okay. And moving on with the fluid discussion, and again, you know, talking about um, how much we should be giving them. This is, oh boy, yeah. you know, we went through the early goal-directed therapy phase, didn't we? What, five, six, seven years ago, um, uh, initiated by Rivers back in 2001 with his trial. Um, that was that, that's since been pulled apart in a in a, 
in a big way for lots of different reasons. Uh, but both process and arise actually demonstrated that early goal directed therapy isn't necessarily beneficial to the patient. So I, I guess the yeah, and promise too. Yes, promise as well. Sorry, yes, that was the uh, UK yeah. one, wasn't it? Um, so I, yeah. I guess the the question that we're all still asking is how much fluid do we give? And um, if we give too much fluid, what's the problem? And I think you've answered that with one of the yeah. trials you've covered, haven't you? Yeah, well, you know, um, so bottom line, so how much fluid do you give? I mean, you know, I, I, let me just start by kind of prefacing everything with this is um, I give Manny Rivers a lot of credit. He put sepsis on the, he made us start paying attention to sepsis, yeah. right? And um, and he didn't know. I mean, think about when he was doing it. Because I see here so many people criticize him, and I get really upset. But um, but think about back when he was doing his his designing his study and enrolling patients. So this is back in the 1990s, right? Late 1990s, yeah. and he published in 2001. But back then, you pretty much died if you had septic shock. I mean, it was about over 50 50 chance of surviving if you had septic shock. And so he just said, okay, we've got a bunch of things we can do. What if we did this kind of group of things and then compared that to what we normally do. And he found that, you know, and, it, and who knows, maybe it came down to fluid and just uh, antibiotics and paying attention, right? Yeah. But he had to start somewhere. And then now we're, we're finding, you know, and I think, you know, it's, it's taken a while, but we're learning more. We're learning the detriments of over-resuscitation. Mm -hmm. And one of the big sayings right now is as, as quickly as you resuscitate, you should de-resuscitate yeah. because of the detriments of over-resuscitating. But one of the things I truly believe is that we have to stop guessing yeah. on fluids. We can, we've got to stop blindly giving fluid. And this is a discussion I've just been having very recently with some of the consultants on uh, on my unit that um, we're not particularly using any um, cardiac output monitoring systems. So what we're doing is we're giving yeah. fluid until we think we shouldn't give any more, and then if the blood pressure won't give up, won't come up anymore. You know, we do fluid challenge after fluid challenge after fluid challenge, and then when that doesn't seem to be working anymore, we just start them on some noradrenaline or, or norepinephrine, as I think you call it. Um, and it just seems yeah. like it's a bit blinded to me. It's not specific to the patient. It's totally it's yeah, specific that. to the patient's yeah. illness, the size, the uh, the patient's habitus. So I'm just starting to believe that um, whilst I, w one of the th the arguments over here, and I don't know if it's the same in the US, is that some of the cardiac output machines are random number generators, people like to call them. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think if they're used in the right way and the patient is um, also used as a measure of their filling, so, you know, are they warm, are they cold, do they look periphery filled, um, then I, I do think they're still going to be massively beneficial in knowing whether you've actually improved that patient's stroke volume or not. Yeah, I mean, I just I call complete BS on the whole number random number generator. I mean, come on, you know, does it? Ha okay, so let's just say I don't know. So let's say worst case scenario, does it have to be an exact cardiac output, especially in sepsis, or does it need just to? Do you need to get an idea if you're heading the right direction? And you know, in one of the studies that I'm trying to think if I included this in the um, oh yeah the KU study, you want me to talk about that? Yeah, go. Okay. Yeah. So hang on. So um, one of the studies I presented at NTI was um, was out of the University of Kansas. And they originally presented a year ago at the European ICU Society. And it was a before and after study. So kind of take that for what it is. It's not considered a high quality study. But what they did was um, they looked at a before and after of kind of guessing the way you described, which is done 
pretty commonly in, I think, facilities all over the world, mm. um, but, you know, just giving fluid until you think it's time to start a presser, right? Yeah. And then what they did, the after portion was they actually used a um, the bioreactance device and used that to guide fluid resuscitation. So what did they find? They found that the group that um, they used bioreactants, um, they gave on average 3.59 liters less fluid. They found that patients who received bioreactants received 33 hours less vasopressors. Mm -hmm. They found that their ICU length of stay dropped by 2.89 days and that the need for mechanical ventilation was cut by 49%. So what's happened from that trial is what's called the FRESH trial. And the FRESH trial stands for Fluid Responsiveness Evaluation in Sepsis-Associated Hypotension. And, um, and so I'm super excited. I'm hoping we have an answer here in the next year as to whether we should be going, you know, using some sort of a stroke volume measure to guide fluid responsiveness. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm going to put money on it. The, the fresh um, that we need to stop guessing. The fresh trial is one that's in, in progress at the moment, is it? Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. So, Jonathan, you want to bet some money on it? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going with you, definitely. Uh, You're going with me. Okay, cool. I want to find somebody who'll bet no, against me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so anyway. The more, uh, the more, uh, the more I see it, the more convinced I am um, that um, yeah. we, we, we just need to guide our fluid a little bit better. Okay, early goal directed yeah, therapy. I'm so. not saying we should dictate how much we give each patient because that was the problem with early goal directed therapy, wasn't it? It was, you know, it was 30 mils per kilo, wasn't it? That's what you give them straight away, regardless of, you know, whether they're fat small tall short whatever um and i think maybe that's yeah. that's something we need to get away from um, one study i do want to talk to you about because you mentioned it at the end um, and i'm, I'm going to go back again it's just i've spotted it paramedic two oh yeah that was in that was done in your world it was in the your side of the world uh, i don't think the re were the results out they don't think the results were out were they? just came out yeah, awesome. Just published. Uh, yeah. Um, and does I'll, I'll it send tell you us paper. anything we don't already know? Um, I think it does. Okay. Okay. And I'll, this is why I say I think it does, because it is amazing to me how many people clinically love epinephrine. They give epi till the cows come home. And yeah. I, I had a feeling because I ran a code blue committee for quite a while. And, um, and I, we had a, a strong feeling that epinephrine was causing harm in some of our, some of our patients, because we were finding in our non shockable rhythms, that patients were going into a V-fib that we couldn't get them out of. And we were able to show that was all retrospective in nature, but we were able to show statistical significance that it was related to frequency and dosing of epinephrine. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so the paramedic two trial just got published. They enrolled over 8,000 patients. So this was done out of Warwick University in the UK and Wales. And, um, and they uh, randomized patients. They were pre-hospital, so out of hospital cardiac arrest, to either get epinephrine you know, one milligram as per the protocol, uh, the guidelines, or they were randomized to get placebo. And what they found was when you looked at all comers of cardiac arrest, they found that uh, basically all comers, they got more patients to the hospital and just uh, like, um, how do I want to say this? Like the, um, uh, like I think the, neuro the neurological survival. outcome wasn't so good, was it, for the survivors, unfortunately, those that had been given yeah. adrenaline? 
the but, but just results to, were worse. Yeah, but to back up the um, so what they found was that they got more patients to the hospital and overall mortality was better. However, mm-hmm. patients were being discharged with severe neurologic disabilities. Yeah. And then when they separated and looked specifically at VFib, um, in VFib, epinephrine did not seem to be beneficial. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of hoping they pull epinephrine for ventricular fibrillation. The only thing I wish that would have done with this study is with this study, I wish they would have done a middle ground of like a half a milligram. Right. Okay. I think that put, could have been pretty cool because um, a lot of EMS systems in the U.S. no longer give a full milligram of epi. They they do like a half a milligram of epi. Okay. So I mean, that's, yeah. that's not something that happens in the UK. And um, funnily enough, I, I've worked with a doctor who is the the lead on this. And um, you know, our our protocol says that it's it's one milligram. That's what you give as your standard every couple of minutes in in a cardiac yeah. arrest. So presumably that's why they chose that. But it's an interesting study, and I think it's gonna it's 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 possibly. Um, created more questions than it's answered as most studies do seem to but um, I think it's an interesting one and uh, it's going to take us forward in in many different ways I think. Um, Yeah I I don't know I'm just going to say Jonathan though I think the severe neurologic neurologic impairment is answering some big questions for us I really do. Yeah Yeah. Yeah. okay Um, right Um, Interesting. Uh, the other poll, one of the other polls you ran, and I'd again interested to know the answer. Uh, should we do therapeutic hypothermia for septic shock? Oh, yes. That was an interesting one. To that one. Yeah. So most people said no. And, um, but I also think there's a lot of confusion just around hypothermia in general um, yeah. for post-cardiac arrest. But this was different. This was for septic shock. And the yeah. idea being if we suppress inflammation, um, could, would there be benefit? And um, what the study found was they actually stopped early for futility because they had worse, worse outcomes. So this study, it was complete bust and it got stopped early. The interesting thing about that as well is what, what, how were they defining therapeutic hypothermia? Were they looking 32 to 34 for that or just less than 36? Yeah, no. So it was 32 to 34 degrees for 24 hours. And then they went to 36 to 38 degrees for 48 hours. And that's an interesting choice, isn't it? Because the, the, the targeted temperature management of the cardiac arrest patient, which initially was 32 to 34. Now, the thinking now is that you just want to keep them less than 36, don't you? So I wonder. Oh, no, why no, no, no. They... Jonathan, I'm going to completely disagree on that one. Okay. Yeah, completely disagree on that because now data are coming out. A lot of facilities who have um, gone to 36, they're now looking at their data. And in fact, a paper was just published yesterday um, where now we're finding that those groups that have gone to 36 are seeing worse outcomes. And there was a paper just published yesterday, 16,000 patients. It was retrospective, but um, 16,000 patients, worse outcomes. The facility I came from, which was the very first in the U.S. to do it went to 36 now we're back to 33 um the uh yeah the bernard trial that was out of australia same thing they went to 36 found worse outcomes and they published their data about a year and a half ago so i i honestly think one of the problems now this is cardiac arrest we're talking now um is that people didn't take 36 very serious Mm-hmm. And a lot of people misinterpreted it as normal thermia. It's not normal thermia. Actually, 36 degrees is a really tough temperature to keep a patient at because they shiver like mad. Yeah. 
And so yeah. I don't know. And, and I think the big problem with the, um, the TTM one trial or the TTM trial was that they rewarmed that 33 degree group. They rewarmed them in, in six hours. We would never, ever do that. We go 12 hours plus. And okay. I kind of, I wonder if that rapid rewarming had a negative impact on that 33 degree group. Well, you would think it's got to have some impact, hasn't it, as opposed to another group that wasn't being rewarmed that quickly. So, yeah. Well, and you know, it really interesting. I was at the um, in March. I was at the Miami Chillin' at the Beach Conference, and um, you know, this was this is a conference specifically all about temperature management. And there were a couple hundred people. These are mostly physicians, but a couple hundred people in the audience. And they asked, so um, uh, a Case Polderman or Case Polderman, who's from. Uh, uh, the Netherlands asked the group, he said, okay, if you personally were to have a cardiac arrest, what would you want? And these are experts in the field. The entire audience, except for three people said that they would want to be cooled to 33 degrees, not 36 degrees. That's interesting. Yes. Okay. So stay tuned because the TTM2 trial just start, um, you know, it just got kicked off this year. And I don't know, I'm, I've got some major concerns about that trial because I'm the, one of the PIs was at the Miami Chillin at the Beach Conference and they're planning to rewarm that 33 degree group in six hours again. That's part of the protocol. And we're all just like sitting there going, are you joking me? Why would you do that? Take the doubt out of this. You yeah. know, just take the doubt out. But anyway, so unfortunate that they're rewarming that quickly. But there you go. Okay. Those uh, papers you've mentioned, um, would you be able to send me the links to those? Yeah. Well, I could send you the papers. You want the papers? Okay. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I've got all the papers. So I'll just send you like a bundle of everything okay. that cool. we went over today. Brilliant. Um, and then the last trial, I've got to get to it. Um, the um, stunning Wait, one second. Yes. Vitamin C saves okay. people dying of sepsis. Talk to me. Ah, yes. Oh, yeah. So, well, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the original vitamin C trial. So, um, and this was, you know, this was a... I have to say a simple trial it was retrospective before and after study done by Paul Merrick out of Virginia in the U.S. And what they did was they had seven months of patients who didn't receive vitamin C. They all got really good sepsis care, but didn't receive any active intervention with vitamin C thiamine, which is B1 or hydrocortisone. And then what they did was for the next seven months, patients got what's now called the metabolic resuscitation protocol, where they gave six grams of vitamin C daily. Um, until they got out of the ICU, they gave thiamine B1 200 milligrams Q12 hours or until they got out of the ICU. And then they did hydrocortisone. And what they found, which I mean, the, the results were absolutely astounding was the, um, the control groups, that's the group that didn't get the vitamin C, um, out of 47 patients in that group, 19 experienced mortality, whereas the treatment group that got the vitamin C protocol, only four out of 47 died. And, you know, and a lot of people have just, they've gone crazy over this study. Okay. So first of all, you have to remember, it's a small end number. It was a retrospective before and after study. Paul Merrick's just trying to figure out, is there a signal? That's all he wanted to know is, is there a signal there? And then what he found, I mean, was, I mean, in their facility, can you imagine you you have 19 out of 47 and then it drops to four out of 47? Mm. Would that make you a believer? Mm. It'd certainly make me want to, to investigate it further. And I'm assuming that's exactly yeah. what's happening, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so right now, currently, there are a total of nine studies that are ongoing evaluating vitamin C in sepsis. And then two of them are big randomized control trial, multi-center randomized control trials. They were very well powered to answer the questions. So hopefully by, uh, I think they're saying late 2019, we should have an answer. Okay. But I mean, like, what's the downfall? It's vitamin C for God's sakes, right? I mean, you don't need it. You pee it out. Um, You know, people are worried about renal calculi or stones. I mean, you know, they didn't see it and Paul Merrick didn't see it in his study. So I I don't know, like, what's the detriment? Okay. We'll wait and see. I'd be interested to see the results of studies. Like you say, it opens a can of worms. And um, I think a little bit like... um, um, oh, uh, rivers um, that maybe with such a dramatic result, we might have further trials that will direct us in the future with that as well. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest. Do I think that um, these randomized control trials are going to see the effect that Merrick saw? I don't think so. No. You know, I, I, I would be shocked if, you know, if that were the case. But, you know, the one thing, and I think that you've got to highlight about the Merrick trial is his, that those patients, it's a, it's a hospital that's very experienced with managing sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock. They got really good sepsis care. And, and that has to be the baseline and foundation for any patient to know whether vitamin C is going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, fascinating discussion, Nicole. That's been really, really interesting. I've, I've, I've found that really interesting and I'm hoping that my audience will as well. In fact, I know they will. Um, some very, very useful papers there. I think there's an awful lot of uh, research out there that you could say is something that's essential to know. So you, you've picked some. Um, there's other papers out there as well that other people might want to, to pick, but I think we've picked some real corkers there, definitely. Um, some direction to the future, hopefully. Um, with some of the um, new advances coming forward that we all need to know about. And I think I'm hoping that um, um, this is something that we can move forward with. Um, so thanks, Nicole. That was absolutely brilliant. Where, where else can we find you in the social media world just so people can oh. search you out? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. So on Facebook, I'm Nicole Kupchik Consulting and Education. Um, Instagram, I'm at Nicole Kupchik. I've got a YouTube show. It's called 10 Minute Tidbits. But you'll find me if you just look up Nicole Kupchik. And then I host a podcast show called Recess 10, where it's it's all all based on uh, cardiac arrest and resuscitation. Excellent. And in the meantime, you've also written a couple of books, I believe. Yeah, I've written five and I'm writing uh, publishing number six and seven coming up here in the next uh, short, short bit. And what particular topics were they on? Yeah, so I, I've written um, study guides uh, for the CCRN, Critical Care Board Certification Exam, the Progressive Care Board Certification Exam, the Cardiac Medicine Board Certification Exam, the Cardiac Surgery Board Certification Exam. And then I'm writing, um, I'm partnered with a pharmacist, and we are writing what is, we are hoping to be the most amazing medication reference book that you could possibly want at your bedside. And it's based on clinical, uh, clinical diagnoses versus just the meds. Excellent. That sounds really useful, yes. actually, most definitely, um, because I think that's the problem, isn't it? You you know, you can flick through your through your um, pharmacopoeia books, if you like, and you just get a long list of drugs, but you don't necessarily know how to apply these drugs to the right patients, do you, without a bit of guidance? So that sounds like it would be really useful. We hope so. We, we hope it makes just the bedside nurse's job a little bit easier. 
Excellent. Nicole, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm hoping that um, I'm going to keep an eye on you um, via the social media and maybe we can do this again sometime. Would love to. Oh, I forgot to mention Twitter. Oh, well. Okay. Ah, Twitter. Yes. <laughs> What's your handle on Twitter? My Twitter handle is Nick, N-I-C, Chick, C-H-I-K, 90. And then I have to like stop making my little comments about political things. So I'll, I'll stop that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> The the uh the the uh the clown cars that are are, are popping out of the US. <laughs> the politics in the US is very interesting oh, at the moment. So it's keeping right. us all amused around the world, I think. <laughs> amused, and then there's us that have to live in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll swap President Trump and you can have Brexit. How about that? Well, actually, you know who I want, Justin Trudeau, not because of anything but other than He's so nice. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy, doesn't he? Definitely. Yes, and he's easy on the eyes. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to take your word for that. Thanks, Nicole. It's been really good to talk to you. Right. Like I say, I hope we can do this again soon and uh, we can uh, we can talk more research in the future. Sounds great. I would love it. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye, Nicole. Bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at ccpractitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner. Or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>